Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 4.27, Approaching the Breaking Point. Before we get going for today, I've got a few quick housekeeping matters that I want to address. First, if things sound a bit different this week, it is because I'm using some new software and equipment for recording and editing. I anticipate that things are going to sound about the same in the end, although I am always hopeful that the final product will be somewhat improved. However, I cannot rule out the occasional audio blip as I figure it all out. Second, a few weeks ago, I changed the podcast's host provider. Now, that should have gone without notice to all of you, which is how I wanted it. What you might notice, however, is that the website is now in the process of being redesigned. It is still a work in progress, but when I am done, I am hoping that it will be more of a companion to the podcast than it has been in the past. If you are saying, website, you have a website? Well, yes, we do have a website. If you were totally unaware that we did have said website, you can check the show notes for the address or you can just go to uspoliticalpodcast.com. Okay, that's enough of that. On with the show. As the calendar turned over from 1774 into 1775, the crisis that had been going on since at least 1765 was approaching what everybody seemed to recognize as its final act. What had begun a decade earlier as protests, riots, and grumblings over colonial rights now had the American colonies perched on the edge of what seemed to be an increasingly inevitable war. Local committees under the auspices of enforcing the decisions of the Continental Congress had, in a staggeringly short amount of time, usurped much of the power which formerly belonged to the imperial governments. Even in those places where the official governments remained, those friendly to the American cause had seized much of the meaningful control. This week we are going to cover the events of the first few months of 1775. While the colonies continue to establish their own governments, back in London everybody is going to learn about just how dire the situation had become. Everybody knew that eventually, London was going to have to respond to both the Continental Congress and then eventually the loss of their own power inside of the colonies. It had become increasingly apparent through the end of 1774 and into 1775 that the Americans were not going to budge and that any hope of a peaceful resolution sat firmly on the shoulders of those back in London. As we discussed last time, Letters had been pouring in for weeks warning the leadership of how dire the situation had become. Both Lord Dunmore in Virginia and Thomas Gage in Massachusetts had written back to London that they effectively had lost control over their respective colonies. If the job of reconciliation, however, fell into the hands of Parliament and King George III, it was a job that they were unwilling to accept. The imperial crisis was now ten years old. Parliament had drawn their line in the sand with the passage of the Coercive Acts and had little intention of backing down. Lord Dartmouth actually welcomed the Continental Congress, though still denouncing it as being illegal, because he hoped that maybe 
they could hatch a plan to move everybody towards reconciliation. However, on this, Dartmouth stood alone. George III wrote to North that he was done playing games and that the colonies could either submit or Britain would need to use more severe measures. For his part, Lord North was having none of it. He stated that if the colonies do not get back with the program, Britain needed to ensure that nobody would trade with them. The British learned throughout the fall about the situation, not only with the Congress, but as well as the conditions in Massachusetts. Thomas Gage wrote to Lord North about his dwindling control over the colony, and just as importantly, impressed upon everybody that he lacked the manpower to put down a rebellion. Gage was requesting something unthinkable in London. He wanted to see the coercive acts lifted. Anything at this point to take the wind out of their sails. Lord North, however, was just not in a position where he could consider backing down, regardless of the consequences. By the end of the year, both the King and Parliament considered Massachusetts to be in open rebellion. Backing down to American demands was the absolute last thing that anybody had on their mind heading into 1775. Gage, reading the room and recognizing that Parliament might not back down, made the additional request for another 20,000 troops, and urging that, if they will not back down on the coercive acts, a first strike may be the best bet. Gage's request for either backing down or, in the alternative, for immediate backup did not prove successful. All it would do is spell the beginning of the end for Thomas Gage. George III tried to recruit Geoffrey Amherst to take the job. However, Amherst had zero interest in returning to the colonies. Gage would remain in control for now, just long enough for a suitable replacement to be found. In January, the ministry would finalize their plans for how to deal with the Americans. The plans called for further punishment of Massachusetts. Trade outside of the empire would be completely shut down. Furthermore, those fisheries that were so vital to New England would be closed off to Massachusetts. This was not a small matter of some fishing grounds either. Rather, this would have been a catastrophic blow to the colony's economy. We have talked for seasons now about the importance of fishing in Massachusetts, and now London intended to shut down that market as a punitive measure. To back up these new measures, and heeding the warning from Gage, reinforcements were sent over to quell any potential uprising. There was some effort to get the rest of the colonies to back down from their defiance, as an olive branch was extended whereby Britain agreed to stop taxing the colonies so long as they agreed to support the imperial administration in the colony, as well as military endeavors within all of the colonies. Critically, however, this was not a reversal of the British right to tax the colonists. Rather, it was returning the colonies to the status quo under the Declaratory Act. Britain retained the right to tax the colonies any time that they wanted, there was a last-ditch effort by William Pitt to stop this act from going through, as he was well aware of just how it was going to be received. Pitt sought an agreement to not tax the colonies without their consent, 
so long as the American Congress guarantee them a revenue stream. Pitt's plan would have seen the troops recalled from Boston, as well as the repeal of the Coercive Acts. Try as he might, however, nobody in London was much in a mood to compromise. Other than throwing the colonists a few pointless bones, the only thing that Parliament was interested in doing was reasserting their authority over the American colonies. To that end, in February, an address was brought to the king that laid bare the situation. The colonies were in rebellion, and that the only course of action that remained was forcing them, at the end of a musket if necessary, to follow the ministry's plan. During these negotiations, the plan to limit trade was expanded to not just Massachusetts, but rather all of the colonies, with New York and North Carolina being the exception. By the beginning of the spring of 1775, the scenario had become set. The colonists had been convinced that the boycott would cause the British to blink, much as it had back in 1766. The problem, though, is that it was no longer 1766. The Stamp Act had taken the British by surprise. They had truly not been expecting any of the turmoil that it had caused. Sure, there might be some grumbling. In governing, there is always somebody complaining about something or another. However, riots and non-importation agreements? They really had not seen that coming. But again, it was no longer 1766. Although, obviously, concerning back in London, nobody was going to be spooked nor surprised by the reaction of the colonists this time. They had been dealing with this for a decade now. If the colonists were betting on Parliament backing down, they were always going to find themselves deeply disappointed. When Pitt had made his last-ditch effort to preserve the peace, he was easily tossed off to the side. The British were not going to blink. They were determined to re-establish their sovereignty in America, using any means necessary. From the point of view of the ministry, the colonies had now moved past that line of resistance to imperial policy and on into open rebellion. Rather than backing down, the British had begun to prepare for war. Back in the colonies, the December 1st deadline for imports had come and gone. As of February 1st, the ban had become total. The slight difference in dates had to do for items that were ordered prior to the Non-Importation Act going into effect, but arriving after that deadline. Following February 1st, however, there were no more excuses. Unlike the haphazard attempts at non-importation from the Townsend Acts, the colonists seemed acutely aware of the importance of getting it right this time. What emerged, therefore, was a well-executed, strict program of enforcement. There were, of course, attempts to bypass the non-importation agreement. However, the widespread local nature of those committees made violating the boycott far easier said than done. When attempts to bypass importation did occur, sometimes the solution was as simple as just returning everything to the sender. Other times, the colonists decided to mimic Boston from a year earlier and have the ship's cargo dumped out into the ocean. 
as the boycott was getting moving. Many colonies still found themselves trying to figure out exactly where they stood. Throughout all of the colonies, the local committees found themselves rapidly gaining power and influence. However, that is not to say that the previously existing governments just disappeared. Rather, the colonies were forced to grapple with questions of authority between the local committees and the central imperial government. In New York, we have seen this playing out over several episodes now. New York was something of a bulwark of the moderate position. Their delegation to the First Congress had not been in favor of non-importation, and argued instead for attempts at reconciliation. In February 1775, the colony's assembly rejected the Congress's resolution and refused to participate in the Second Congress. This angered many of the more radical-leaning colonists in New York, who did in fact support the actions of the Congress. The Committee of 60, up from the 51 members when we talked about them back during episode 4.23, chose to hold a meeting on March 6, intending to bypass the Assembly and elect a delegation anyway. This, of course, infuriated the Assembly, who were not thrilled that the Committee of 60 had just outright ignored them. The meeting went on as planned, and an election for a delegation to the Second Continental Congress was set for March 15th. Plans were also made for a provincial convention to be held on April 20th. Critically, the reports from that meeting back on March 6th depicts a tremendous turnout of colonists. In her book, 1774, The Long Year of Revolution, Mary Beth Norton talks about a loyalist historian who, years after the fact, gave a description of the leaders of the Committee of Sixty going around and rounding up pretty much anybody that they could, including boys, sailors, Negroes, and New England and New Jersey boatmen. This is a critical comment when putting things into context, and I want to take just a moment with it. Obviously framed from a loyalist point of view, the people he is claiming were rounded up for the meeting would not generally be those people in the 18th century that would have been considered highly respectful members of society. He is essentially saying that the large amount of support at the meeting came from the dregs of society. However, the statement acknowledges that large crowds did in fact show up, and rather than attempting to deny the support, it attempts to justify the support as coming from nothing more than the local riffraff. Despite the attempts here by the Loyalists to downplay the popular support for the Congress in New York, there were signs everywhere that things were changing. The Delancey family had held an iron grip over affairs in New York for decades. Even now in March of 1775, despite there being clear signs of cracks as the Committee of Sixty exerted its power, the New York government remained, more or less, in control over that colony. In a few weeks' time, we are going to come back to New York in the immediate aftermath of Lexington and Concord and see just how weak the power of the Delancey family as well as the local conservatives, had actually become. New York was not alone in the struggle of trying to figure out just who was in control either. 
even in the colonies where this question seemed to already have been answered, such as in Virginia. Things were really not that clear-cut. Governor Dunmore had admitted the previous December, in a letter to Dartmouth, that he had basically lost control over the colony. However, more accurately, Dunmore had yet to really challenge the legitimacy of the local committees. Recall that he was worried about calling the Burgesses to session, because doing so risked them immediately validating the association, as well as the committees meant to enforce it. Virginia called a provincial congress in late March, where, as expected, it adopted the decisions of the first congress. They likewise would make provisions for the militia, elected delegates to the second congress, and voted to keep the courts closed. None of this was a surprise, and it was certainly all entirely predictable. What, however, was more surprising was the questions that were being raised over the legitimate ends of the local committees. The more conservative members were far more hesitant to step into an outright governing mode, and instead viewed the authority of the local committees as extending only so far as the enforcement of the boycott extended. Where this group was far more skittish was when it came to questions of taking over those government jobs, such as the local administration and collection of the taxes. As we talked about last time, there were a good number of people in the colonies that were guessing that the boycott would fail to bring the needed results, and they were okay with what that meant. However, this is a good reminder that there were other people in the colonies who took the opposite view. This group in Virginia certainly wanted a redress of their grievances. However, their end goal was not eventual independence. It was always reconciliation. In North Carolina, this battle was far more direct, as the colonial government openly challenged the Provincial Congress. Governor Josiah Martin attacked the convention, claiming that it was an illegal body with no real legitimacy. He told the population to ignore the convention, and that they should refuse to call their elected delegates to the Second Continental Congress. Now, in a moment that pretty much tells us what we need to know, this ultimately fell flat when the convention had enough members to reach a quorum, whereas the official assembly failed to achieve the same result. North Carolina saw their official assembly clash with the provincial convention in a very direct way. At the end of the day, it was the convention that Martin had declared to be an illegal gathering that would end up triumphing. This does illustrate the fact that there were absolutely attempts by the imperial governments to retain their control over the colonies. Pennsylvania a place that in short order is going to become something of a makeshift colonial capital, brought its own complications. Pennsylvania still retained a proprietary governor as the Penn family, much to the very considerable chagrin of Benjamin Franklin, remained in control of the colony. John Penn encouraged the assembly to prepare and submit a petition directly to the king. This was meant to be something issued by Pennsylvania directly, it was meant to be in addition to the petition that had been sent along by the First Continental Congress. 
though not completely sure what Penn was going for here, it may have been an attempt to pierce the perceived unanimity of the Congress. This is, at least, what the Assembly also read into it, thus they passed on the opportunity. We have spent a good amount of time already with Dickinson, specifically back in episode 4.12. However, I want to take just a few minutes to discuss Galloway. Galloway has been at the center of Pennsylvania politics for a while at this point, and at least on the surface, fits the exact model of somebody whom you would assume to be a devotee to the cause of American liberty. Galloway had been a mainstay in the Pennsylvania legislature since 1756, and had become a close friend and frequent correspondent of Benjamin Franklin. From the beginning, however, Galloway had a worldview that was exceptionally nationalistic in nature. This nationalism was not unique for the time. Galloway was not just proud to be a British subject, but instead viewed his citizenship as providing him with more freedom than any other people. This is not to say that Galloway was in any way opposed to American rights necessarily. However, where his divergence is going to appear is in where the ultimate end game of the movement appeared to have been. For Galloway, he envisioned a system where what was good for Britain was good for America, and vice versa. Joseph Galloway did not want independence. What he sought was far greater integration into the empire. His friendship with Franklin was largely based around their joint mutual hate for being part of the proprietary government. Recall that the entire reason that Franklin was in London in the first place was because he was busy attacking the Penn family's hold on the colony. Whereas Franklin would come around to the idea that independence from Great Britain was the logical path forward, Galloway continued to want Pennsylvania to become a royal colony. Going as far back as the Stamp Act, Galloway had advocated for a reconsideration of the relationship between the American colonies and the mother country. He maintained this position, that the imperial crisis opened up an opportunity to reform existing systems throughout the majority of the crisis. What Galloway envisioned, therefore, was not independence, but a reimagining of the underlying relationship between the colonies and Great Britain. This would manifest itself in his suggestion for the creation of a Union of American Colonies. This planned union was modeled off the Albany Union, proposed by Franklin back in 1754. The problem for Galloway is that by the time we get to 1774, his hopes of a closer union with Great Britain were quickly slipping away. He was deeply concerned with what he had seen during the Continental Congress and all the talk that he was hearing about independence. From that point forward, though, it became increasingly clear that Galloway no longer remained in step with the rest of Congress. Even as chatter and rumors of American independence began to circulate, he continued to preach for his plan of reform. Galloway wanted the creation of an American Congress that would act as a new branch of Parliament to deal specifically with American matters. John Dickinson was himself never exactly a radical. He was already a well-known moderating voice, 
something that would become even more pronounced, much to his personal detriment, during the debates over independence in 1776. Although both Galloway and Dickinson wanted to keep lines of communication open, and sent yet another petition to the king, the fear of the more radical members is that this would lead to a slippery slope, and ultimately compromises that nobody had any stomach for. Galloway went even further, and denounced the Congress in its entirety. This was not a new position for him either. Recall that even as the Congress was ongoing, and he was a delegate, he had been a vocal opponent in the press. He apparently upset people so much that by the end of the legislative session, he was receiving death threats, and a noose showed up on his doorstep. Practically, what this meant is that politics in the late winter of 1775 had slowed to a crawl of endless debate, which in turn was absolutely maddening to those who were seeking a swift and decisive decision. William Bradford would write to James Madison that these debates were slowing down preparations for defending the colony if, and when, war came, and that it was well past time to begin organizing the militia. Dickinson, although deeply hoping that peace would prevail, seemed far less optimistic of that outcome. Months before, in the immediate aftermath of the Congress, he had told Arthur Lee that while he was wishing for peace, he would be surprised if it came. Dickinson would continue to advocate for peace throughout the beginning of the Revolution, and would in time become the principal author of the Olive Branch Petition, something that we will be talking about in an upcoming episode. Ultimately, we are going to see Dickinson and Galloway fall onto very different sides of the American Revolution. Dickinson, as we will discuss, is going to have deep reservations about independence. However, he is going to remain loyal to the American cause. Joseph Galloway, on the other hand, is going to become the best-known American loyalist, with the possible exception of William Franklin. In the first few months of 1775, there was a real struggle going on throughout all of the colonies. If the association had been meant to be some kind of staring contest between the colonies and Great Britain, it had become abundantly clear in the early months of 1775 that neither side had any plans on blinking first. Both the British and the Americans were doubling down. In America, real questions of just who the legitimate governments were dominated those early months. The existing royal governments found themselves fighting with those local committees and provincial congresses over just who was the legitimate government inside of the colonies. These questions were often messy, as lines blurred to just who controlled what. As April arrived in 1775, what nobody yet knew is that there was quickly approaching an event that would send shockwaves through everything we have talked about over the last three episodes and would radically shift where everybody stood. This week we are going to wrap things up by going to the place that is, in fact, on the verge of tumbling over that precipice, and from where those shockwaves would emanate. There had been since the end of the previous summer, an arms race going on inside of Massachusetts. 
we have spent significant time discussing the seizure of cannons from batteries throughout New England. We have likewise talked about the attempts of the British to take control of the powder. This would lead to the powder alarm that so worried those at the beginning of the Congress. By the end of 1774, Massachusetts was essentially in the hands of the Americans, with the notable exception being Boston. Boston, long the seat of radicalism in North America, was about the only place in Massachusetts that was firmly under the control of Thomas Gage. Months before, Gage had improved the batteries on the Boston Neck and turned the cannons away from the Atlantic and towards the much more real threats, the colonists. This was clearly a provocative move. However, even here, the colonists themselves would show that they were not going to back down or cower in fear. Within Boston itself, there continued to be daring attempts to smuggle cannon out of the city to the relative safety of the rebel-controlled countryside. On September 14th, a pair of two-pounders, cannons with the ability to launch a projectile weighing two pounds, were snatched from an armory inside of Boston. This repeated itself two days later on the 16th, when more guns were snuck out of armories that were under British control. The theft of these guns was absolutely maddening to Gage, because it is not as though they were stolen from poorly garrisoned locations. Locals who were still sympathetic to the American cause would help sneak these cannons out of the city. Throughout this process of getting the cannons out, there were plenty of colonists who had learned of what was going on. The guns were, for a time, hidden under the floorboards of a local schoolhouse. Despite a search by the British regulars, they failed to find the location of the cannons. This is despite the fact that both the headmaster and likely the boys inside of the school were aware of the cannons hiding right under their feet. This goes to show that, even inside of Boston, where loyalists found a safe haven, there were still plenty of people who were loyal to the American cause. If you are interested, there is actually a very fascinating backstory to these cannons that were stolen. Historian J.L. Bell has a fantastic book on just this subject, called The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannons Ignited the Revolution. If you are interested, which I imagine you are because you are listening to this podcast, I recommend that you check it out. Wanting to gain control over both the above-mentioned cannons, as well as other artillery, Gage became more provocative during the late winter of 1775. Gage had been tipped off that there was a substantial number of cannons in Salem towards the end of February. Sending out troops to investigate and recover the weapons on February 26, they moved on Salem. Ultimately, no guns were found and the British returned home empty-handed. However, the mission itself tells us a lot about where things stood in Massachusetts. To begin, let's look at the source of the information that these cannons were in Salem to begin with. The information likely came from Dr. Benjamin Church. Church is a person who has been hanging around the periphery of our story for a while now. Long devoted to the American cause, he frequently spoke with and worked with Dr. Joseph Warren, 
and was by this point an inner circle member of the Boston Committee. We don't really know when Benjamin Church became a British spy, and through these critical spring months, it was not yet known. It was not until the end of 1775 that people learned that Church had been working for the British. We do know, however, that Church had attended a meeting of the Boston Committee on February 21st. That same day, Gage suddenly appears to have learned a significant amount about how the Americans were moving around their guns, with this information most likely coming courtesy of Church. The treachery of Benjamin Church aside, historian Mary Beth Norton draws importance out of the fact that the British did not proceed to Salem by land, but rather by sea. Furthermore, rather than landing in Salem directly, they chose to land in nearby Marblehead. The precautions taken by Gage show the dangers for the regulars to step outside of Boston. These fears were not merely imaginary either, as there was significant concern that an encounter with the Americans could lead to a potential conflict. In Salem, sure enough, there were a large number of Americans who came out to greet the British. The colonists, under the control of Timothy Pickering, took control of a critical drawbridge, quickly raising it to prevent the British from passing. When the British moved to take boats across, the Americans quickly sank them. What ensued was a standoff. On one side, you had the British yelling across for men to lower the drawbridge. On the other side, you had the defiant Americans who absolutely did not plan on lowering the drawbridge. The Americans issued a warning that express riders had gone out and that reinforcements were coming. This news was a very serious concern to their commander, Colonel Alexander Leslie. This entire time, everybody was getting very nervous and very twitchy, as Leslie failed to rule out firing on the colonists in order to carry out his orders. Witnesses remarked on the regulars preparing their weapons for a potential engagement. After about an hour and a half, an agreement was negotiated that brought the stalemate to an end. Leslie was steadfast that he would not be backing down until he had at least entered Salem. The agreement was that the drawbridge would be lowered, Leslie would march into Salem in order to save face, he would then promptly turn around and march right back out the way he came. The Americans were okay with this agreement, because in the intervening 90 minutes, they had made sure that even if Leslie decided to search the town, there was nothing there for him to find. Leslie, likely worried that reinforcements were on their way and not wanting to get slaughtered, agreed to the plan. The British proceeded across the now-lowered bridge. They turned around and marched right back to their waiting transports in Marblehead. Leslie was not wrong to have been worried. In towns around Salem, Militia companies were in fact mustering for the possibility that fighting was about to break out. We know, sitting here today, that Salem was not the first battle of the Revolution, and that instead Lexington and Concord were. However, really, the only reason that Salem was not the first battle of the war is because nobody ever fired a shot. Well, that is, 
obviously a pretty major distinction. It is important to understand that the other conditions were all present. The same conditions would be present weeks later in Lexington and Concord. All Salem was lacking was a spark. Thomas Gage, already doing anything he could to get himself onto steadier footing, was humiliated by what amounted to a defeat in Salem. The readiness of the local militia companies gives a glimpse into how quickly Massachusetts could now mobilize. Express riders, something which we are going to talk more about next time, existed all over the colony, ready at a moment's notice to race out to the surrounding towns and let them know that the British were up to something. Colonists had quietly begun talking with local native tribes in an effort to find allies for a conflict with Britain. Independence was now on the lips of people publicly. Dr. Warren gave the always important speech on March the 6th for the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. In his speech, he trumpeted the rights of the original colonists and the nature of their sacred charter and the destruction of that charter at the hands of the British through the Massachusetts Government Act. During the speech, he made the necessary comments that peace was, of course, preferable. However, he made no secret that if bloodshed is necessary, it was a price that they were willing to pay. British officers attending the speech were ready to jump up at the first signs of disrespect towards the king. Warren, however, carefully kept everything directed away from the king and towards Parliament. Although they did not shut him down, they did not hesitate to take the opportunity to be as disruptive as possible, often laughing and loudly coughing during key moments, something that the colonists certainly recognized. Warren was not alone in talking about these thoughts, as throughout the colony, similar speeches dominated during the anniversary of the massacre. That March, the air in Boston was thick with tension. Everything traveling in and out of the city was subject to a search for fear of weapons traveling in either direction. The Provincial Congress was busy preparing the colony for an inevitable war. A committee of safety was established to help oversee the militia, while other committees worked on gathering the necessary arms and ammunition. A general warning was put out to the colonists, that under no circumstance should they work for, nor do any business with, the British Army. During this same period, they stepped up their efforts at reconnaissance and at collecting the taxes necessary to fund a war. Everybody could plainly see the war clouds. The Provincial Congress issued an address that March to the population telling them that, with their rights at risk, it was their Christian and social duty to resist tyranny. In no uncertain terms, the Provincial Congress was warning the people that not only was there a war coming, but that it was their duty to defend the colony. This is not to say that there was unanimity towards a course of action inside the Congress. Gage was aware, courtesy of Benjamin Church, that there was still debate on just how far they wanted to push events. Different factions found the idea of war more palatable than others. However, despite these disagreements, it was universally agreed upon that actions towards the common defense needed to be undertaken, which was exactly what was happening. 
by the end of March, everybody in Massachusetts, both rebel and loyalist alike, agreed that a civil war was looming with little hope of escaping it. It was under these conditions that, in the beginning of April, those orders from London that we had begun talking about at the beginning of today's episode would reach the colonies. This news sent convulsions through a population that was already preparing for war. Any lingering hope, as minuscule as that might have been, that the British were going to back down was crushed. They were doubling down and had declared the colony to be in a state of open rebellion. The decision to close fisheries to Massachusetts was going to devastate the colonial economy. On top of all of that, huge numbers of troops were actively making their way across the Atlantic to enforce parliamentary prerogative at the end of a musket. Over the next few weeks, militia activity increased throughout Massachusetts. All over the colony, companies of militia were letting others know that they were ready to fight. As the colonists were reacting to the news from London, Thomas Gage was preparing to act. Dartmouth had sent Gage a letter on January 27th, a letter which would get to Gage on April 14th, informing the governor that reinforcements were on the way, although not the full 20,000 that Gage had requested. Dartmouth agreed with the conclusion of Parliament. The colonies were in open rebellion. In his letter, Dartmouth tells Gage that the time has come to take a more decisive stand against the Americans and to restore imperial rule. Dartmouth, however, mentions that, in his opinion, this was still a small group of rabble leading the way, and that nothing here was being done with any kind of coordination. He felt confident that a smaller, but professional, British army should easily be able to put down any kind of uprising. Dartmouth was banking on the idea that the colonies were haphazardly responding, clearly lacking a full understanding of just how developed the local committees had become. He wrote to Gage that he should move to arrest the ringleaders in Congress. He urged him to act secretly and decisively to prevent as much of a response as possible, and ideally avoid a confrontation. Dartmouth did ultimately leave the final decision, and the ultimate responsibility, to Gage while at the same time cautioning about the risk of further delay. Gage got the message loud and clear. On April 18th, 1775, Thomas Gage decided to act on intelligence that supplies, including those cannons that were snuck out of Boston some months earlier, were hiding in Concord. Gage determined that on that night, he would order troops to march on Concord, to destroy the American supplies. Nothing would ever be the same again. Next time, the Imperial Crisis comes to an end as the American Revolution begins. I want to take just a moment to thank all of you for listening. It has taken us 136 episodes, right around 68 hours of recorded audio, and nearly 700,000 words to reach the revolution. But next time, that is exactly where we are going to be. Until next time, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy, 
and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we head towards Lexington and Concord for a shot that will be heard around the world.